0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Miroslava Chavez-Garcia about her book, Migrant Longing, Letter Writing Across the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Dr. Chavez-Garcia is a professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Migrant Logging takes a look at the history of migration, courtship, and identity, as told through a personal collection of 300 letters exchanged among Dr. Chavez Garcia's family members in the 1960s and 1970s. An incredible find for any historian, Migrant Logging gives an intimate portrayal of what migration looked like across the uh, U.S.-Mexico borderland. Dr. Travis Garcia, or as you've asked me to call you, Miros, welcome to the program. Hi, Derek. Thanks so much for having me on. So, I guess to get things started off, can you tell us what it was like um, studying this topic and coming into uh, possession of these 300 letters? You know, what was it like to kind of come across this archive and be able to use it?
1: Well, I do have to say that it was a quite, uh, now that I think back, it was thrilling, but um, kind of you don't know what you have until you sort of start digging through the material. So actually these letters, so it's more than 300 letters, um, they've been in my family for many years. I just didn't know it at the time. Um, initially, I came across about 80 to 85 letters that were exchanged between my parents. So at the time, my father was a farm worker in this Imperial Valley in, in um, Southern California uh, near San Diego. Uh, he was, a um, a, a farm worker, uh, during, um, the Bracero program, uh, the guest worker program uh, between the U S and Mexico in the 1950s. He was there. And then my mother, he was writing to my mother. while she was a young woman of 17, um, years old, 18 years old in Mexico, residing in his hometown. So he's, they're both from the same hometown. So he had run into her um, on one of his trips home because he would go home periodically to visit. And then he you know, met her, saw her, and then started writing to her. And so these, these letters between them, about 85, 35 that she wrote and about 40-some that he wrote to her, um, these are um, both of those sets of letters um, that they kept. Uh, and I stumbled across um, in the basement of the house and where I was raised. So the little thing about this uh, situation is that my parents actually died in a car accident when I was 12 years old. So um, we were driving back from Mexico, my brother, myself, my parents, and my grandmother, my father's mother. And we got into an accident and both my parents um, died and my grandmother died as well. Um, and just my brother and I survived. So these letters um, were letters that my mother had kept. I had never seen them before. And we when we moved, so my parents died in 1981. And then after that, we moved in with my aunt and my uncle my father's youngest brother um, into their home, and they raised us. And at some point when I was in college, so sort of fast forward, you know, a number of years, um, about 15 or so years later in the basement, I'm trying to figure out what to take to college because there's, you know, knickknacks and plates and things I can take. We had moved a lot of our things from our home, my parents' home, just a few things we had kept. And among all that stuff that we had in the basement of my uncle and aunt's house were all the letters I had seen them. They were like packed up and, you know, in this uh, sort of a Ziploc bag. And I thought like, what are these? I sort of, you know, I was an undergraduate, I was looking at them there was handwritten in Spanish. The writing was looked terrible to me. And I thought, oh, I can't, I don't know what this is. So I thought, and then I put them back. I thought, I didn't know what I did with them actually, to be honest, years later. Um, but then, in uh, 2012, I had, um, moved recently to Santa Barbara where I'm at now. And my uncle who raised me, um, his wife had just died, his, my aunt who raised me. So she had just died that year in 2012 and he had been cleaning the basement, you know, uh, something that had always been something they were going to do. And so he sort of was cleaning everything out cause she had died and he wanted to sort of, I guess, go through things and he brought them to me and he brought them to me in Santa Barbara and I had just finished my second book project and he brought them to me and goes, Here you're going to, you might want these. And I thought like, Oh, I thought I had lost them. And, you know, and then so I started going through all of them and I just was able to, I don't know. It was much easier to read. And there were just, all the themes in there just resonated with the themes of, you know, um, 20th century immigration and migration history across the U S Mexico border. And so then I started, you know, going through them and I realized they're letters of courtship, he was trying to win her over and she's in Mexico saying, I'm not interested, but continue to write. So the back and forth was really fun to put them in order, and you know, sort of like everything a historian would want to do. And, and you know, it's your family, and I, you know, all the mentions of the the things that I had studied in the books, and here they were living it and talking about these things. So that made it that much more exciting and fun. And then as I was writing the essay, my uncle who raised me, he says, "Oh." By the way, I have some letters too. And I was thinking, like, wow, why didn't you tell me this along, you know, eight months ago or 10 months ago? And so then there we go back to the basement and um, they're in a trunk, right? It took a few tries to find the right trunk because he has a lot of stuff. And sure enough, his trunk, he has like more than 200 letters are in there. They're like neatly bound all in the envelopes. They're like, you know, rubber bands around stacks of letters. And these are letters from the same time period of my parents' letter exchange um same family members not just my father writing to um my you know letters between my father and my uncle but my grandfather and my uncle between um other f- friends of my uncle's um other brothers and then there's also letters between my uncle and his girlfriend who happens to be my mom's older sister so um, and i found some of my mom's writings in her letters like she, they would like co-author these letters so it was like couldn't be you know just not how much more perfect uh, of a you know archive could I find they all sort of those additional two hundred letters seemed to fill in all these gaps about my parents' relationship, so it just came natural it just like here it is, and just sort of floated I mean now I think it floated, but i 'm sure I was like, "What do I do with this but um I just knew I had a story there and and the themes kind of sort of assembling. Um, Together. So that was exciting. Uh, I think the other thing that really helped too is that I just know this history fairly well. I've been teaching immigration classes for about 18, 19 years, you know, US um, Mexico border policies and practices and immigration. So because I had that, that knowledge, that context uh, to some degree, I knew that these um, said a lot more about migration than we knew. Uh, and then I had to study a lot of Mexican history, which I didn't know, but that was really fun too because I really enjoy learning new things. So I love, uh, you know, stumbling on new projects. It just makes me that there's so much excitement for me behind it, learning new things. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question about these the letters and the archive.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's fascinating to, you know, kind of come across such uh kind of rare archive because, you know, for listeners who might not be familiar with, you know, the historical profession, but you're interested in learning about history, I can tell you that 300 letters, a collection of like over 300 letters of kind of just everyday people is not something that historians come across very often. And the way that you use these letters as a migratory history and a family history is very interesting. And so how and why did you come to study them that way? And what was it like using your own family as a point of entry for this subject?
1: Well, I decided to use them in this way because I saw that there were themes and experiences that had not really been talked about in the literature. So that's, again, knowing the literature on this topic, because I really like to read everything I could find on immigration. I mean, I haven't read everything. There's so much in Stuff is constantly coming out. New studies are constantly coming out. But I saw in there, uh, you know, references to uh, policies changing, right? My grandfather telling his son, go find out, go find this lawyer in Los Angeles. I hear he represents people and you could get, you know, your status adjusted. And I looked at the lawyer in the LA Times and sure enough, he was there and he was uh, working to uh around some policies that were being uh, changed at the time. And so that was great. I thought like, wow, Um, they mentioned Chicanos. My uncle is 1962. He's writing a letter to a friend home in Mexico. And he's talking about Chicanos in 1962. And I'm thinking like, how did my uncle, like, you know, an immigrant young man in in California talking about, you know, and so I had, uh, had the opportunity to ask him later about it. So there was all these, you know, I saw these, the, these, the resonance, you know, sort of the, um, not just echoes, but intersection, the intersection of my family history with larger U.S. social history, which I thought was really, uh, amazing to see those connections. And I think we all have those, it's just a matter sometimes of teasing them out, but I was very fortunate in terms of what themes appear in those letters that, that resonate on a larger, uh, on a larger scale. And, um, I should just say as a small caveat, the letters are now housed at the Huntington library in San Marino. Um, the Huntington library, you know, has, uh, these vast British history collections and some Western Americana, but they're now working on building, um, family history archives around letters of, um, Mexicans, uh, people of Mexican or Latino origin and also Chinese families of the West. So that's something they're doing now. And I do have to say, you know, using the letters, um, in terms of how, that process, what it was like, uh, I was quite surprised when I started doing this research, like a lot of people would tell me, uh, even, you know, the people I think tend to be feminist historians or scholars would say like, are you sure that's, that's okay? Is isn't, how are you going to preserve distance? Like, isn't that bias? Aren't there some difficulties and challenges? Like, how are you going to use that? That's too close or that's too personal. And I just sort of was taken aback because I thought that that's an odd thing to say. I thought like, you know, there is a methodology for all sources. So why can't I use these sources in the way, you know, that I'd like to use them? I just need to learn how to approach sources and um, letters in particular. And I had the opportunity to read the work of um, David Gerber, who's written a book called Authors of Their Own Lives about British immigrants in the United States. And uh, he's done some really wonderful things with, uh, he's written several books and I use his book quite a bit to, um, to uh, help me understand, help me read the letters sort of using literary analysis because a lot of his, and uh, his work, his book that he uses is about literary analysis. So half of his book is about looking, looking at patterns, how people write, how they, you know, the, the formulas that are used in the letter writing process. And so that was very very helpful. But at one point, I was really weirded out with the letters. I was reading them and trying to make sense of them. And I and I, when, I guess in the back of my head, I had thought, you know, that these letters, especially in the letter to my parents, like you know, I felt like here's material culture. Here's something that they left behind that they touched, that they used to write on, that they exchanged, that uh, eventually became a, a really important part of the relationship. And in some ways, even was the relationship, you know, with no letters there's no relationship. So as, you know, David Gerber says, um, the letters constituted this relationship. And then I also had thought in my mind, like, you know, it's a, it's a way to get to know them because I didn't have that opportunity, you know, as, uh, um, because they died when I was really young and I didn't get to know who they were or get to know them as adults. And then I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. You know, then I realized that like, yes, I had crossed that line between them being you know too close and too personal. and realized this is not, the parents that I knew this, these are different people, you know, living in um, their youth. They're very young. They're just, and honestly, I didn't recognize them when I read their letters. I am like, these aren't the parents that I knew. Um, and so you, I did have to sort of check myself as I read and I thought about these letters, you know, what I would say, what I wouldn't say, how honest or how far down I would, you know, I dig. So, um, yeah, it does take a little bit of, um, back and forth, like any source, right. I told, uh, the people who sort of questioned me and said, well, you know, censuses have um, problems with them. Oral histories have limitations. So it's just a matter of knowing the source, the limitations of our sources, and also thinking about our own subjectivity. Like what is our relationship to our source, to our data or what, how, whatever term you want to use? And what is your role in interpreting that material? So.
0: Yeah, I mean, For me, like I, there's there's not enough sort of studies like this out there, and I mean, for a practical reason, you know, like 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 we said earlier, you know, a collection of over 300 letters from you know sort of everyday people is not something you come across very often, much less maybe in your own family. But for me, I, I think it's such an interesting way of you know telling history and. I really hope that the profession kind of moves towards not kind of, you know, sort of looking down on that or questioning it because as you said, you know, it's just any other source and we're trained to be able to read sources and we're also trained to be able to recognize, you know, our own biases, our own kind of, you know, leanings and research and everything like that. And it's also the idea that, you know, Writing a history that involves your own family that you're somehow too connected to that is like we're always connected to the histories that we write.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's something that we're told as graduate students, or at least trained. At least I recall that. Um, but at this point, it was my third book, and and I just didn't care. I just thought like that gave me the freedom to be honest. I don't. I wouldn't not have done this book. And somebody's asked me that had it been my first or my second book, uh, and I think that for a long time, you know, I spent a lot of time in the archives and looking at, at um, registers, mission registers, church records, and things like that registers for my own research. And there's a lot of people doing family history genealogy at these places. Cause my first book was on 19th century, California, and I never had any interest doing any family history, but it just, you know, now that I was of like, you know, thinking about my family, the letters appeared, I had opportunity and I felt comfortable in my position in the, you know, in the academy. Uh, that let me write this book. Um, Sadly, I do have to confess I've I've gotten into the system. (laughs) But, um, you know, and I just wanted to make a book, write a book that people would read, you know, and so the language is even much more relaxed and that's more of my style for sure. Uh, And so I enjoy doing it that way. But there is a lot of value. And I think that, you know, perhaps it wasn't seen as hard, quote unquote, research, you know, with all the, you know, intense, but um, it's a narrative. And I think it's, it's based on archival sources. And I I think I contributed something.
0: Yeah. I mean, for myself, you know, I would tell our listeners, the book is, is very readable. You know, it's, it's a history book, but it's honestly enjoyable. You know, I found myself laughing at times, especially during the early parts where you're talking about the early phases of uh, your father and mother's relationship. And in terms of, you know, Talking about what's going on here, what does your study um, add to what we already know about migration, gender, and identity? These big topics that you discuss in here.
1: I think that in many ways, my study does reinforce a lot of what we know about you know the Bracero program, the binational labor importation program, about you know the need for workers for the economy. Those are the claims, right? The for economic needs. Um, but also, I think the one the main One of my main arguments is that these sources really allow us to get at the personal and the emotional aspect of of migrants and who they were, you know, um, emotionally, personally, sexually as well. Things things that we cannot usually find in these sort of other kinds of sources that are more driven about economics or oral history certainly can get at that. I just, the, it's just the, the letters have much more vivid details uh, and speak to the moment and they just you know encapsulate so much more that was going on and i think that the letters do that and i was able to follow up with oral histories and to it's amazing when they repeat what's in the letters or they'll say oh, i can't remember and then i'll say well the letter said this and they'll say really okay that's fine i don't know but it's you know so the letters sort of uh again, again it had their own biases because letters um not only do they they do provide so much, but they also, you know, they can be very manipulative as well. Uh, people can choose to include things or not include things. Uh, and they have to think about their audience, who's going to read it or not read it. And so all these aspects to it make it challenging. But, you know, again, because there's not that much that's been written about these particular sort of personal. Until recently, I said the book before mine um, by Ana Rosas is called um, um <laughs> Embracing the, it's in Spanish, but uh, embracing the, the spirit the spirit about the border. And then Ana Anna, um, Anna Minion, um, she has a new book out about immigrants, about the personal lives of immigrants as well. So it's a new area because I think so much of the other area in terms of economic, political, policy, and, and border studies has sort of impacted. There's a lot of it. And so people are sort of, thinking, what else can we learn about immigrants that it's important to know? So it helps us understand immigrants, not just as as I say in the book, as these sort of robots or these automatons, you know, in this capitalist regime, it's actually, we see them as, you know, um, as these emotional, you know, uh, people who had, uh, you know, inconsistencies, uh, you know, they weren't perfect. And, but they also had their, uh, they also had these, um, elements about them that they brought to their communities that made them, that made everybody very rich and complex. So I think that's what my book tries to do is, um, talk about these, you know, I didn't always agree. I didn't think my mother was a very, (laughs) always, it's the nicest person that she could be. So, um, but she was who she was based on her own, you know, experiences. So,
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and speaking about, you know, the kind of sources that are used for, you know, this history, you know, what people are used to looking at, how they're used to looking at the people involved, you know, as you just said, is like seeing migrants and immigrants as kind of just cogs in a capitalist machine and what these letters reveal uh, in comparison to that. What do, you know, letters in this sort of context, you know, help us learn, uh, about the kind of established narrative of Mexican migration, you know, what sort of sets them apart from the other sources that historians may commonly use and how do they allow us to kind of tell a different history?
1: Well, I I think what they allow us to do is to, perhaps it might not, it shifts to some degree our understanding of the bigger the bigger picture. So the bigger picture, meaning like the institutional, the structural narrative, right, that we know about these policies and these programs and the economics and how the economy fluctuates and shifts. But it also shows how people were using that to their own advantage, how they understood it. As I think a lot of times we don't think they understand what's happening and yet they do understand and they're taking advantage of certain policies, um, you know, when uh, perhaps, you know, the higher ups are using that for their own purpose but they were really smart navigating. So you see these sort of subtle ways that people are doing these things um, through the letters. Um, Again, my grandfather was um, very, he read the papers all the time, you know, and it's funny cause he was literate. You know, he was the, um, I, my grandfather was dirt poor. They were very, very poor, but he learned to read like in 1903 and he was born in 1903 and he learned to read as a young boy and he was t- uh, tapped to do a lot of roles in the community. And, but he, and so he, constantly kept up with things going on. So he would write about that in his letters and, you know, oh, I hear this is happening. I hear that's happening. So that changes the narrative a little bit, you know, in terms of the role of, of, um, human agents in this process of this historical period. So that I think is what the letters really allow, um, to
0: see in, in any ways. And in terms of, you know, what's going on during this time period to kind of give an idea of like what the people are writing about, you know, what are some of the push and pull factors that are causing the migration you study in this book? And, you know, you've mentioned it a couple of times and uh, already, and it's, you know, kind of center stage in the book to a large extent when talking about policies and programs and stuff like that for our readers who are less familiar with it what is the bracero program
1: yeah so the bracero program was established in 1942 uh during uh, world war ii or as a result of the world war ii and the need for labor in the united states um what they call stoop labor agricultural labor because we have um uh men you know a lot of american men and men of color as well and women. going uh participating in the war economy or going to war, simply put. And so a lot of those positions when they left from their jobs, other people moved into them. Um, we have the buildup of the war economy. We have, you know, white women and um, uh, men of color and women of color moving into those. And so there's a need in agricultural zones for workers. And so the US and Mexico work out this binational agreement. And they intend they eventually extend it, you know, many times and it, it finally expires or they finally allow it to expire in 1964. And there's a, you know, that's a vast history we can learn to talk about about this. I don't want to get into the weeds about the Bracero program. But uh, so my father came under the auspices of that program. And I even think, I know several of his brothers also participated. And I think my grandfather might have participated because my grandfather was here in California in the 1930s. He did some Um, migratory labor uh, up and down the coast to California. I found out later, of course. Um, uh, So that my father was able to get his green card through that program. So that part of that program allowed employers to sponsor their workers uh, and to be able to get a green card. So my father in the 1950s, before the Bethlehem program ended, he was already had his green card, which has meant his permanent residency. Um, So as long as you had somebody to vouch for you, You could then get the green card and then bring your family eventually over. And then once you became a citizen, um, even green card holders could petition for their family members, but they had to wait. It was a longer process. Um, And that was because of the 1965 Immigration Act made that possible. Uh, Nevertheless, the the Bracero Program did provide a lot of uh, ability for these workers to root themselves in the United States. Um, not all employers uh, sponsor their, their employees, but my father had a good relationship. I learned later with his boss, um, Steve Reeves um, from the Imperial Valley, so that was really a, a good opportunity for that. Um, and so, and in terms of people where people came, so it is economics. You know, poverty driving people, um, instability in their communities, the need to you know um, send money home, remittances is really really important. But also, I think what we get at with these letters and you know oral histories also provide this. But that's sort of sometimes people would leave for um, personal reasons, right? For family dynamics. Um, I guess my mother was escaping patriarchy, you know, patriarchal relations in her own home and having to deal with her stepfather. But of course, then she marries and you know rejoins that system by being part of the you know, the marriage and the patriarchy. My father was. You know, there's themes there of patriarchy for sure. But um, sometimes abusive marriages or abusive relationships, my mother's relationship with her stepfather was abusive. So she was leaving that as well. So those letters allow us to get into those um, more specific details of, of why. Um, it's not just always, I always tell my students when I teach the immigration class, it's not just push and pull. Again, we're not just, you know, robots. There's other reasons that people leave and, and there's different ways to get at that. So
0: And in terms of going off of what you were just talking about, one of the main themes of your book is to investigate uh, the role of gender in migration and immigration. And so what can we learn about gender in this process from the letters that you are studying?
1: Well, one thing that I have always known, but it helped me articulate this idea that immigration is a gendered process, right? In terms of uh, who decides to leave or who would, uh, who the society is you know going to say leaves as part of this sort of family unit to to um, be able to maintain it. So immigration is very much about gender roles in a particular time and place, right? What they mean at that time. It shifts over time, of course. but in this period, even the Bracera program is highly gendered, right? It's for males only, women are not allowed, families are not allowed. Uh, women are not allowed specifically because the idea is that they'll have a family and they'll root themselves in the United States. And the Bracero Program is a temporary program. It's just means to have pe- bring people over temporarily and then return them. Right? It's not about, you know, it's not an immigration policy. It's not even immigration. It's, it's, it's a migratory policy. It's just temporary. So, um, but it's highly gendered, again, because it's for men only. And so that becomes really important. Um, And also, I think what was really fun to see in these letters is just how gender is created through the letters, right? How masculinity comes through in these letters, Uh, in the men writing home and my father and other individuals as well, trying to portray themselves as these sort of, you know, modern, cosmopolitan, um, you know, worldly men who knew what was happening in terms of being in the United States and having access to these things, you know, knowing the language and the culture and so forth. I mean, they didn't go that far, but my father did. There's an exchange, you know, he has between my mother. They're exchanging this. Um, uh, they're talking about language, and, and she's quizzing him on English, how much he knows. He's gonna. She gives him English quizzes, and and after a while, he he admits, well, you know, I actually don't know any English. You know, I took one class, but I didn't like it, and so I, I you know, the only English we really need, he said, is just common language, you know, common English words that just get us. We don't need formal English, so. Um, so that was able to come through there, but um, certainly you see how gender is created through these letters. So again, it's the creating of the self of the identity through the letters, and um, gender is very much a part of that process. So,
0: and you know, one of the things that you know that you mentioned earlier that I, I really appreciated in terms of you know why these letters are important and you know why they're worth using in a history and you know kind of as the core kind of part of a history is that you mentioned that the letters kind of serve as the relationship. And so how, what purpose did the letters serve for migrants um, in the, in your study and then kind of in general, you know, going off of that theme?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really good question. I think that the letters served, there was kind of a general purpose of them, but I think individually too, they meant different things. So I think for the majority of them as a way to give evidence that this relationship was still alive or still there. And that this communication. I guess it's your only at that moment. I mean, there are the use of the phones and people would call occasionally, but I heard it in the letters. I don't think I ever, maybe once or twice. Oh, my father just mentioned like she, that she could call, he could call, but it would be too difficult because of his work hours or something, but not much credence is given to the phone. So really they're relying on letters to maintain the relationship, to nurture the relationship for them to touch and feel the relationship um to feel they have control in this relationship to some extent that's one theme uh, that resonates in with my fa- with my grandfather um, he wrote about 50 letters to my uncle and these half sheets you know he didn't use a full sheet he wanted to say paper he, they're typewritten and so he was very meticulous when the letters would come he didn't say I'm reading your letter now as I type your my answer to your letter he would pound them out and send them and he would keep them and say like I received this letter but I'm missing this letter and so for him, it was, they were a really important way to keep control or keep in contact with his sons, right? So the larger picture that there's um, one, two, three, f- he has four boys and one girl, the three oldest men, my father's um, second oldest, there's three of them in the United States as braceros are working or out there somewhere. And then my uncle, the youngest, he's at home, but then he migrates during this process. And so when my uncle's in the United States and my grandfather's writing to him, he's saying like, you know, where's your older brother? Like, why hasn't he written to me? tell him this, tell him that. So every letter, he's like, where is he? Where is the money he was going to send me? And at one point in which, you know, shows that the letter is the self, he says, show him this letter, tell him what I'm telling, you know, use the letter as my, as me, you know, represent me through the letter. And so he uses the letters as a way to try to rope in his sons who he feels he's losing control over and which he eventually does, because they don't really respond to him, you know, even though he's, you know, they will come and visit him occasionally. But he, you know, some of them spent a couple of years without returning home. So definitely letters became a way of attaching themselves of maintaining relationships. And I'll just say one other thing that in another chapter where my uncle and, um, his girlfriend, who's my mom's, who's my aunt, um, she, she's at home and he's in the United States and I only had about 15 of their letters, but she's constantly writing to him saying, where are you? You promised you would return this is it's this month and it's my birthday or the, the there's a party going on there's a fiesta and you didn't show up and you promised me you would be so there's heartache you know you see this heartache coming through and and pouring through she has a lot of heartache she gets mad at him she she dumps him you know and then she's like oh i was just joking i just had the nerves you know my nerves were acting up and so then i investigate what what she meant by nerves and and so for her the letters um were sort of this lament this um I don't know, they became a different, slightly different medium than they were for my grandfather. For her, there was her way, her only, her sort of last stitch of keeping that uh, relationship going. But um, they were quite moving. So I said, everybody has, um, and then lastly, I'll say one more thing. Uh, it's my uncle's friends, right? All the male guy, the guys, the guys, in quotes, who would write to him and say like, oh, you know, how's it going in El Norte? How are you doing, big guy? Like, Constructing him as his very masculine, uh, accomplished man, you know they would say like, "Oh, show me pictures. I want to see how buffed you are standing next to your car you know so it's like this ideal of this young guy in a car and and so they use these letters to sort of build up build each other up, you know, when clearly things are not going so great because in the letters my uncle turns around to tell somebody else and he's not having a good time so uh, the letters meant different things to different people, but certainly they were um very you know,
0: uh, important source point of contact. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, I, 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 find really interesting is just the kind of, as you're saying just now, the kind of wide variety of like meanings that these letters have for people and really like how kind of, to me, how rich that makes the history itself in terms of trying to learn about migration and immigration, um across this borderlands region and like what it means to the people on the ground and like how they're navigating that and mm-hmm. in terms of you know navigating you know this changing world and everything like that you know we're talking about the Borsero program and you know you've mentioned that you know uh immigration and migration are gendered uh in particular be with this program because it's aimed at men um who are you know coming over and you know they are the only ones allowed to participate in the program, but you also talk about in this book the reasons why women would choose to migrate and immigrate to the United states um and you've kind of uh, briefly kind of hinted at that, but what are some of the reasons that you were able to uncover and kind of how do those you know, fit into say like maybe the established narrative
1: yeah there um the research on women is only now really um coming becoming much more apparent and you know for a long time it was thought just men migrated um there's research you know um Vicky ruiz in her work was talking about uh, ruiz um the from out of the shadows book you know the early 20th century and it's true women didn't migrate alone you know uh, or they came with family members which was more common and even in the bracero program in the 40s 50s and 60s you know they're not allowed to become part of the program but some of them will come as um family members it is hard for them to come because they need to have you know the most important thing for the, for Mexicans um, is that they're not excluded based on quotas of any kind, but they are until 1965, um, but they are, uh, they have to show that there's somebody can vouch for them. Somebody can support them. Right. So that's the primary way they can be excluded on the grounds of being, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, likely to be a, a public charge. Right. And so that the public charge, was the most important way for Mexicans to find their way to the United States if they could find support. So women had to be able to have letters or have people in the United States could vouch for them. So many times the women who come a little bit later, women really start to come in significant numbers in the 70s and the 80s, and that is for family re- reunification. Um, and so we see that. My mother's case, she had married my father, and then she follows him immediately um, to the north, and so she has to wait in, uh, in Mexico on the border, in Mexicali, uh, for her papers to clear. And so a lot of women do that for, you know, they're married, they come to rejoin their husbands or their daughters or their sisters. And they're able to come, um, a little bit later, but they, they do still come. It's still, people are still doing that research. It's hard to track them. Um, but there is, uh, you know, we should say coming out, um, to say more about that, but it did give me a glimpse, but still was heavily male, um, sort of gendered in that sense, the letters, cause a lot of them are about the men doing these things but certainly uh, women do play a large role, you know, in, in this, in this process.
0: And I think one of the, one of the, um, ways that you kind of show this is as you kind of said earlier with, um, say like your uncle, um, and his girlfriend, and, uh, you show this also with your father trying to kind of keep the relationship alive with your mother is that there's kind of this, give and take when it comes to migration, where it's not just a linear process, there's also return migration. And so what role does that play um, in this story?
1: Yeah. So return migration, I love that you asked that question because um, I don't think I took it up as much as I should have now that you're mentioning, but it's really uh, crucial because for a very long period, right. Until, until immigration law started getting more and more Uh, tough, or we can say until the border was created in a much more solid fashion or way that we could see it. You know, return migration was part of the process. People would come to the United States to work, um, farm farming worker, that was primarily one area, agricultural work or other industries, and would work for six months, maybe three months, nine months, and then return and, you know, bring home their profits or their little bit of money that they made and and be at home for part of the season, usually for um, harvest season and so forth. Uh, And so that was expected cycle of the process was to, you know, come return back and forth across the border. But as things got more challenging in terms of crossing the border, people thought about returning, they stayed longer. And as they formed, maybe perhaps formed a family, then they even stayed longer. And they, you know, there was always dreams about returning home. And so people would return at some point, but a lot more people stayed And so return migration, it's it's part of the narrative that people understand. And so when that doesn't happen, it it sort of shatters a lot of people. And I think this is a good period in the 1960s to see that, you know. Um, And so my grandfather is a good example of the return migration. Like, where are the sons? They're supposed to be back home, you know. Even though he really likes the money and he asks for it, he needs it to, you know, repair the home that is falling apart. Literally, um, even some people are saying in other letters, you know, your house is not doing well. He's. They're telling the, the sons in the north like, send the money. Um, you know he 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 has a hard time with that. Um, so he because return migration was so part, so much part of the process. He's having a hard time understanding like why that's not happening. Same with the girlfriend. You know she's like, well, where are you? You said you would return. And, um, but I'm sure even in the early 20th century, you know people would say they would, would return and they didn't because I know that other scholars have found that too. That communication can get lost people sometimes also have accidents and die abroad and you don't know what happens to them but return migration is has been sort of part of this history and um we can see its uh its role when it's not honored right so yeah thanks for pointing that out i think that's
0: yeah and i mean in terms of you know speaking about you know how people kind of navigate living through you know, the, the separation that is entailed in migration and immigration. Uh, how did you find that people were able to kind of, you know, live with this, you know, cause you're obviously being separated from your loved ones, you know, in the case of your grandfather, he has, you know, sons who are, you know, supposed to come back at some point and he's kind of losing his grip on that or with your aunt who, you know, is writing to her boyfriend and the relationship seems to be falling apart. And so how are, able, how are people able to kind of survive, you know, this across this border and, you know, what sort of roles are pe- people supposed to play within the family? You know, what sort of roles I should say, are they supposed to kind of occupy?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because it's still a very pertinent question today, right? In terms of family separations. And now with mothers being much more uh, a fixture of mothers, you know, leaving the home and leaving the children behind with the grandparents that has been going on for several decades now, um, much more commonly. And it's difficult. I mean, I don't, I didn't have that experience. I think that there's always a sense of they'll be home soon or we'll see them soon. Or as long as we know they're returning for Christmas and the holidays, that's always at least that's where the holiday, uh, reunions that they do when they, people go back to Mexico or wherever the United or other countries that becomes such a pivotal uh, moment, you know, those two weeks when they go visit that becomes really important. Um, but the, what we call now has been called the transnational families, transnational motherhood, transnational children, you know, of of living of new form, new family forms, of. being across these ties, being across the border. That's how people live. And yeah, that's now they give it a fancy name, right? I want to say fancy, but they call it transnational families. It's something that's always been around where you have these mothering across borders or fathering across borders and so forth. And scholars have been writing about this sort of very purposefully in the last few years, but we see that, that that's, what's been happening. And it's not easy. It's not a pretty picture. It's not ideal. Um, You know, we see cases of what happened. I've seen in my own family, extended family, where, you know, you don't see your mom for eight years or 12 years, then you reunite and she tries to have control over you. She tries to parent you and you're like, who are you? You're not my parent. So there's a real schism in terms of, um, you know, uh, relationships and also culturally. One parent is in the United States, a child has been raised in Mexico or the Central American country or whatever. There's that challenge as well. So um they're being raised by different families, um, family members. And then when those families are sort of shifted, I don't want to say disrupted or, you know, um damaged, but these families have to readjust themselves. You know, the grandmothers now take over the role as mother, or at home the oldest daughter takes the role of the head of the household in some ways. Um it's hard on children. It it forces them to grow up, it forces them, you know, we get the sense of childhood being this golden time and really Childhood is really uh, class specific, Um, I would say culturally specific too, uh, that not all children get to, you know, a five-year-old doesn't get to, it looks different, you know, in the United States and Mexico and Vietnam and wherever in Africa, different, you know, those experiences are different. So people adjust, but again, I I think that um, it's not ideal, but people make make the best of it.
0: And so, you know, we're talking about how people are kind of surviving, you know, this distance apart and everything like that. And in your book, that's what you're studying through these letters and everything. And, you know, one of the things that you that we see very early on in your book, and like I said, early on listeners, you know, I, I'm still having you in mind, guys and, and gals and everyone else, Um This book is, you know, talking about serious matters, but there's also, you know, some lightheartedness in it, which is, you know, just great. And one of them is when you talk about kind of the protocols in letter writing and how your father kind of breaks them when after his initial letter goes unanswered to your mother, he writes off another one because he's kind of so desperate and wants to make sure that, you know, the fledging relationship that hasn't even really formed, doesn't fall apart. Um, And so what sort of protocols are there in letter writing? And, you know, what happens when they're broken? You know, we've kind of you've kind of hinted at it and spoken a little bit about it, particularly with your your grandfather, who's expecting, you know, his sons to write home to him and, and they don't. And so what happens when, you know, these sort of protocols break down?
1: yeah uh so in looking, I didn't quite realize the depth about letters and that there is a protocol right when one, one thinks like, well, this is just natural, but in reading David Gerber's work, he does he sort of gives us these rules that uh, not so much rules but what he found the patterns that he found in the letter writing from the British um immigrants and the kind of things that the you know, protocols that exist there, and one of them he says is the one for one right, so you write one, the person responds, and you're supposed to do, wait and follow right. That, that is one thing that's supposed to happen. Then um, I didn't find that a lot of his so-called rules. I didn't. I find that in my letter writers, they all broke those rules. Could be because it was just a different time period. Um, but nevertheless, so my father wrote one letter. Then he didn't hear back. Then he wrote another, and I think he even wrote like a third letter. Um, and so finally, she wrote the letters crossed. And so you're supposed to wait to hear from them. And he said, "Oh, I'm sorry. I was just desperate." And um, my aunt too, who's desperate for her boyfriend, my uncle, to. Um, you know, uh, to write to him, she, write, she fires off letters to him and he doesn't respond. And she says, I've written to you and you know, why don't you respond? And what can they say in the end? They're just sort of, kind of defeated, you know? And, um, another thing that I found too, in these letters that, um, David Gerber are, says that in his letters, well one rule is that people don't argue in the letters, right? That they try to play nice because you're trying to, you know, be on your best behavior. It's a form of, kind of conversion, but I do, that's not what I found. I do find that there's arguments, you know that there's um you know of, of calling out of persons you know uh faults that happens quite a bit in the letters. so I thought, well, this is these folks are doing their own kind of thing, but there's also sort of culturally uh specific things that happen in the letters in terms of how they write to each other, how they refer to each other, um that for instance, one is that you know women don't write to write to men first. Men are, and this is in Mexico, like the idea that men write first, but we see that, um, so they, the women try to conform to that. That doesn't always happen. Women always talk to about the nerves, right? That they, I didn't write properly because of my nerves, those nervios, you know, they talk about nervios. And, and so I was looking this up and, and, and there was not, there's some, you know, written in the U.S. history about it, but it was an interesting thing in how women use it, but, um, although men use it as well. So um, definitely there's these patterns of of protocols of how people should address each other. Kind of fun to to figure those out.
0: And one of the things that you uh, briefly spoke about earlier, and it's kind of really interesting to think about in terms of the gendered aspects of migration and immigration, is how all of this kind of intersects with masculinity in particular to kind of the construction of masculinity. And one of the more interesting points in your book is like, is talking about how not only does uh, the construction of masculinity kind of intersect with migration, immigration, but it also is kind of further complicated by the documented and undocumented kind of binary that is, you know, more and more kind of being uh, kind of hardened in the United States Mm -hmm. throughout this, this period. And so, you know, I know you were speaking, if I remembering correctly, about your uncle who, you know, with the boys, as you said, uh, asking him for a picture with, you know, to see how he looks and next to a car. And, you know, the cover of your book, if I'm remembering correctly, is this photo that your father sent to your mother um, where he's standing in front of a car. And so how does um, all of this kind of intersect with the construction of masculinity. What does that process look like?
1: That's so funny. You know, I hadn't thought about that. Um, now that you say uh, about the picture, my, I had several pictures. I had another idea for a cover, and my, my spouse who did the cover he liked that picture. And I thought that that's odd. And now that I think about it, I mean, there's a perfect example of this identity construction, right? This particular kind of masculine identity that my father wanted to construct in this photo. And he really loved that photo. So if you look at the cover, it's this picture of him, right? Looking in his suit and like pointing at the camera, like playfully. And, um, there's like a, a letter superimposed and that letter talks about that photograph. So that letter goes with that photograph. And in the letter, he says, you know, um, I sent you this picture to my mother. He says, have that picture that I look really, um, the word is sangron in Spanish, which means like, I look really, um, over the top, you know, uh, I can't translate it right now real quickly, but sangron, sangre is blood. Like I look really like, um, you know, uh, um, I'll just say over the top. I can't really translate that word. So, um, he says, but he says, uh, if you don't like the the photo, um, return it to me because I like it. You no. Know? So he's saying like, you know, even though you might not like, I really do like it. And so that, picture is really a good symbol for like this kind of masculinity and this kind of coolness that was associated with being, um, you know, in the United States for these young men and what it meant for them. And in many ways, I I do think that the book, I try to keep it light as much as possible. And actually at one point I thought like, I better put some sad stuff in here because they're not going to think this is academic enough. Um, but certainly it's the first book that I have a lighthearted cover usually my covers are like, you know, doom and gloom, um, but I wanted to, you know, I thought I'll go along with this, you know, not this sort of uh, fun cover, fun image of the cover. But um, certainly being, you know, because my, my father and my uncle, my uncle was able to cross into the United States uh, dock with a green card or a residency or I guess um, temporary, you know, status of, through my father and his employer. So both of them have screens and versus his buddies, my uncle's buddies who are writing to him who don't have it don't have that status and that is weighs on them heavily heavily very heavily um chapter five my last chapter talks about rogelio rogelio is my um uncle's friend from the same hometown uh, rogelio martinez and he writes to my uncle constantly asking for advice and he wants to cross into the united states and get residency and he is based in juarez across the border from el paso texas He's there uh, working with his uncle and trying to get into the United States. He's like, he says, I want to go into the door, the front door. He says, I want to go into the front door, but I can't. He needs um, letters of support. And he's trying to find people to give those, provide those to him. And he's constantly asking my uncle for, um, you know, his advice. And his buddies are also writing to my uncle saying like, you've got it made. Let's see how many women do you have? You know, um, what's the story you're holding out on us? You know, or do people really look good to you? kind of thing. Um, so they want to hear from him. Um, they want to hear, uh, you know, and see what kind of, uh, you know, virile young man. They ask for details. They say, you know, what are your, uh, how many girlfriends do you have again? Or what are your sexual conquests? You know, have you made it, have you graduated? Meaning, have you had, intercourse? you know, sex with anybody over there? Um, they want details. So they want to hear about, you know, what these, what they're up to in El Norte, because it's the promised land, you know, for them it's a symbol of, of having made it. So definitely this legal status is, um, it comes out, it's a real, it's a very real thing. And that comes out in chapter in this last chapter that I read about this young man trying, Rogelio trying to cross and everything that he goes through the poor guy, you know, right? he gets in an accident. He's, you know, he gets thrown back into Mexico. All these things happen to him on his, on his road to, um, residency.
0: Well, before we let you go, you know, we have this great book in front of us. You know, hopefully our listeners will go out and buy and read this book. Once again, it's uh, Miroslava, Ch- Miroslava Chavez Garcia, Migrant Logging, Letter Writing Across the U.S. Mexico Borderlands. So we have this in front of us. Now, I know it's your third book, and so you might just say, I'm just going to take a break. But what might, can- what might we expect from you in the future?
1: Well, actually I am doing some work on, um, again, immigration. I didn't plan it. I was been looking around, but I'm looking now at organization, like I'm doing the opposite. Now I'm going back to these anti-immigrant advocates. I'm looking at organizations from the 1960s and seventies, and I don't know how far I'll take it, but organizations like FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, Center for Immigration Studies, uh, USA, uh, N- numbers, USA, there was us, English, all of the, you know, Sierra club, Audubon society, um, and all these individuals who worked uh, really hard in the environment slash population slash immigration front. So I'm going to be looking at those connections. Um, they've, they've been written about, but I have access here on our campus at UC Santa Barbara to these archives of people who were intimately involved. And so fun stuff. A lot of letters, a lot of juicy details. Well, not as juicy as the ones that I had in my, um, in my book, but, uh, you know, the intimate, uh, side of it thing. So I'm working on that just started. It's fun. So it'll well, be the, the other side of immigration.
0: Well, I'm sure when that work is, you know, eventually out and everything like that, we can have you right back onto the program uh, to talk about that. But, you know, Miro, thank you so much for coming onto the program today.
1: Yeah, Derek, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.